Rob Yule is a year four teacher at Kuiper Christian School, uh, which is in Red Bank Road in Currajong, where my wife Sue teaches. Also, Gareth teaches there as well. And some of the people in the room have been former students, and some of you are still students there. Now, when Rob teaches maths to his year four class, he makes his students put on a tie. Why? Because, as he says, maths is a serious business, and Marilyn would certainly attest to that. Now, Jesus wasn't a maths teacher, but whenever he had important things to say to his disciples, he took them up a mountain. So whenever you see something in the, uh, in the Gospels about that, you'll say, aha, something important is about to happen. Something important is about, as they say, to go down. Now, mountains are mentioned over 500 times in the Bible because the vicinity and the, the, the area that the, the um, Bible is, is located, the, the geographic area, is very mountainous. It's a wilderness. And in fact, the Golan Heights east of uh, the Sea of Galilee are so high that snow falls on them in winter. Mountains also have a religious symbolism for, the, for Jewish and Christian cultures. Since they are, when you're on a mountain, you are closer to God, given that whenever you talk about God, he's always up there. He is the one who dwells in the heavens. And often God will reveal himself on the mountaintop. <coughs> Two mountains are very important uh, in Old Testament, and that's the Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, because that's where Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments from God and Mount Zion, because that's where the temple is, in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus delivers the Beatitudes on a mountain, and his sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, for obvious reasons. The image draws on Jewish history, because it was uh, Moses who received those Ten Commandments, as we heard. And... Matthew, in writing to his Jewish audience, would immediately, his audience would immediately pick up on the comparison between Moses and Jesus. Now, there are six significant mountain scenes in uh, Matthew's Gospel, and some of these are mirrored in the other Gospels as well. Jesus was tempted on a mountain. The sermon was given, as we heard, on a mountain. There were a number of healings undertaken on a mountain or mountains. Jesus' final discourse before he was ascended into heaven was on a mountain. The apostles themselves were commissioned on a mountain. But perhaps the most significant mountain seen in the Gospels is the one we're looking at tonight, and that is the Transfiguration. So important messages are delivered on mountains. Now, who was there at the time? Well, there was Jesus, the Messiah. If you look back at the first uh, few verses of uh, Mark chapter 1, you'll see that right at the beginning, Mark tells us that this gospel is about Jesus, the Messiah, the King who has come to bring in God's long-awaited kingdom. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, but those who experience the events that are recorded for us here, those who lived it out in real time, really struggled to work out what was going on, 
particularly around this man, Jesus. The disciples who shadowed his every move struggled. The crowds who witnessed his miracles and heard his teachings, they struggled. Those who met Jesus struggled. Jesus' family struggled. At one point, they thought he was out of his mind. The religious authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the high priests also struggled. All are puzzled as to who this Jesus is and what his motives were. Those who saw and heard him constantly tried to evaluate who he was against the backdrop of scripture, what they knew about the Old Testament. They were often divided and confused. Some even got angry and annoyed at Jesus and what he did. But we know that in the long run, some of those get it right and some get it wrong. The constant underlying murmur amongst those who see and experience Jesus is, who is this man? Where did he come from? What's he doing? And why? Jesus had a profound effect on all who encountered him. He comes across as compassionate. He comes across as powerful over the natural world. He is seen as having authority over men and women, over their sickness and even over their death. He demonstrates power over evil and over demons. The Gospels portray the incredible hostility and anger of the religious authorities and the political rulers of the day toward Jesus. He has a way of dividing people. We also see the profound dumbness and even stupidity of the disciples. Now, I say that in a measured way. The disciples, even though they were around him for such a long time, just simply don't get it. Jesus, who is God, is amongst them. They see scripture being fulfilled before their eyes, yet they're too dull to see it. They really don't understand. They have eyes to see, but don't see. They've got ears to hear, but they don't hear. As we have it, there is one among the disciples who is a bit different to the rest. He's a rare beast. He is Simon, who is called Peter. We see earlier in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, that he's a fairly loose-tongued sort of person. However, at that point in the gospel, his eyes are opened as to who Jesus actually is. The scene is Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're responding. And then he comes to a moment where he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Well, you can imagine there were puzzled looks amongst the disciples looking towards each other as to who was going to speak first. And true to form, Peter, the brash disciple, says, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah, he says. Well, at last the penny has dropped. Peter finally recognises who Jesus is. Talk about being thick. At that, all that time with Jesus, and only now he can recognise who he is? 
And as we heard in a, in a previous um, a talk, this is a major turning point in the Gospel of, Matthew, of uh, Mark. From here, the story about Jesus gets a whole new direction. Well, actually, it gets into two directions, both of which are different. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Having recognised that Jesus is the Messiah, the disciples' Jewish minds click into gear and they begin recounting those parts of Scripture that talk about the coming of the Messiah. And there's lots of those in the Old Testament. I only picked out the Daniel passage as one of them. There's a lot in Isaiah as well. You see, the Jews utterly lived and breathed the Scriptures. They knew all the signs that alluded uh, to the coming of the Messiah. They knew what to expect from him when he came. Let me just read a couple of verses from, um, from our reading uh, today. In my vision at night I looked, this is verse 13 of chapter 7 of Daniel, and before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, says Daniel. Further on in that particular passage at verse 27, he says, then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. The Jewishness of disciples clicked on this. Aha! The Messiah is a warrior king. It says here that all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. That's the Jews. So... The Messiah they were expecting, Peter having recognised him, was a warrior king, a bit like David. They expected the Messiah to come and re-establish the Jewish kingdom on earth. They expected him to wage war against those idol-worshipping Gentiles, in particular the Romans who were occupying the land. They expected that he would destroy the sinners among the Jews. Most people of Jesus' time believed that several prophecies in the scriptures confirmed that he would be a warrior king, this Messiah, and a judge, a son of David, a descendant of that king. And they expected, just as David had expanded God's kingdom by going to war, that he would do likewise. They looked for one like Moses, who defeated the Egyptians and established them as a great nation. The idea that the Messianic king would lead a rebellion was the main expectation of the Messiah in Jesus' time, which is why when he admitted to being Christ, he was immediately accused of stirring up rebellion against Rome. That's who they expected. That was the first direction. But Jesus, the Messiah, at a different direction and it was totally different to the first to his disciples what Jesus revealed about his mission led them in utter disbelief 
Jesus' mission as Messiah wasn't to re-establish the earthly Jewish kingdom at all. He came as a suffering servant king, a king whose purpose was to reunite people with God. And to do this, he told his disciples that, firstly, he would face suffering, secondly, he would face rejection, and thirdly, he would face death at the hands of the leaders of Israel. Now, if you turn to your cartoon, this is where this comes in, you've got two sheep speaking there. One of them says to the other, why is God the Father always on about listening to Jesus? Aren't they listening? Yes, says the other one. But it's, harder to, it's about to get harder. Jesus is going to start talking about his arrest and torture and death. First one says, oh, why do you always have to get so sad and nasty? You know I hate hearing about that stuff. Exactly the reaction of the disciples when Jesus told them that he had to suffer. They didn't want to hear the bad news. They just wanted the glory. Jesus tells his disciples that the Elijah figure, who was John the Baptist, had come first, just as the scripture said he would. Now John the Baptist faced suffering and death, even though he was expected as the Elijah figure, he was put to death. So Jesus really had not much to face except death. Jesus also taught them that the Son of Man would not stay dead. He would rise from the dead and that would be the time when they could go and tell people all about it. We know the sequence of events. At that time, they were living the sequence of events. So here we have two opposite views and expectations of what Messiah would do. Warrior, king and judge on the one hand and suffering servant on the other. Then we have this amazing situation, a thing called the transfiguration. Has anyone ever seen the glory of Jesus the way it was described here? I certainly haven't. It would make me tremble in my uh, boots. That's why I wore boots, boots tonight. It would make me tremble in my boots if I was involved in, in something like that. In the transfiguration itself, Jesus is changed in his likeness in such a glorious way that even the author is lost for words. The term transfiguration means a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. The Greek word translated transfigured in our Bibles is metamorphote, from which we also get the word metamorphosis. So the person of Jesus changed radically and brilliantly into the form of his risen state. So what's happening here? He is showing Peter, James and John, he is making them witnesses to the radiance and brightness of the risen Jesus before he's resurrected. This is the state that Jesus would normally be in, not his earthly state. This is the true form of Jesus. He's giving them a glimpse of the future. Even though they saw the transformed Jesus with their own eyes, they were still none the wiser. They were so confused that Peter, wanting to preserve that moment in time, suggested erecting three tents to commemorate the spectacular event. And we read that he was frightened, as no doubt were James and John. 
Now, this particular reaction is worth dwelling on because I think it epitomises the human response to Jesus. And it can be seen in the response to Jesus by people today. Those who revere Jesus or have some association with him tend to act in a certain way, not unlike the disciples. I'll try and explain this fairly complex thing by use of an analogy. And uh, I'll be referring to wherever Ian is, Ian over there, in a moment, through what I'm having, having to say. He wasn't aware of this, by the way. Some of you will know that I have a passion for photography, especially landscape photography. Right, Ian? <laughs> As I look at God's world and see its magnificence, I see majesty and I see beauty. I stand in awe of God's creation. And some of you who see sunrises and sunsets, beautiful scenery and the like, will know what I'm talking about. Moved by what I see, I put all my thought and creativity into trying to get a photo that best represents what I see in order to create something that comes as close to reality as possible. I seek to capture all the majesty, all the beauty within a small rectangular frame. So I'm forced to create a replica or a version of the real thing because my frame of reference doesn't allow me to capture reality, not even with a panoramic, panoramic feature. Faced with Jesus' glory, Peter, James and John were forced to process what they witnessed during Jesus' transfiguration in much the same way, given the constraints and frame of reference that they had. Having realised that Jesus was the Messiah, they had to respond in the best way they knew how. They carried with them all their Jewishness, their Jewish upbringing, what they'd been taught to them as they grew up. All of this combined when faced with the awesome brilliance of the real Jesus found them lost for words and frightened. Until Peter, being the person that he is, spoke up trying his hardest to give a proper response. Uh, it's good for us to be here, Jesus. Let's put up three shelters, he said, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, just to mark the occasion. You see, they responded to the event through their own limited frame of reference, through what they understood. They reached their conclusions based on the knowledge they had from the Scriptures and also the commonly held expectations uh, of, the, of the community and country around them, the expectations of what the Messiah would be. They responded in a small part to a very much bigger picture. They held a narrow and truncated view of who Jesus was and what his mission on earth is all about and respond, as responded accordingly. Just as a photo tells but part of a story, so the disciples only deal with part of the whole story of Jesus' purpose on earth. I want us to think a little bit about what we see about us that are the shelters of today. In response to Jesus, we have, and Christians over the, over the uh, centuries, have erected buildings, we have painted scenes, we have made life-size images, we have made icons, we have built buildings, memorials, created sacred sites, venerated holy objects, 
all in response to the revelation of Jesus as God. I put the question to you, is it right to give objects this sort of value? Are we glorifying God by means of our creativity and our industry? What is the best way to glorify him? All these things are worth considering. The transfiguration of Jesus up there on the mountain reinforces what Jesus said to his disciples back in Mark chapter, chapter 8 verses 31 to 38 where he teaches them in order that to fulfil his mission he must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, killed and in three days risen, rise from the dead as we've heard earlier. So here we have the mountain, here we have Jesus, here we have Peter, James and John and Elijah and Moses. And now what do we have? A cloud. Those of you who travel early to work uh, these days will understand uh, not so much a cloud but fog on the roads and how difficult it is to manoeuvre and how difficult it is to see within a cloud. Jesus, um, Elijah, Moses, Peter, James and John are now covered by a cloud. Now in Jewish thought the presence of God is regularly connected with the presence of a cloud. It was the cloud that, Mo that, that uh, within which Moses met God was the cloud that went before the, the uh, children of Israel as they moved through the, uh, towards the promised land out of Egypt. It was in the cloud that God came to the tabernacle. It was the cloud which rifled the, the temple when it was dedicated after Solomon built it. And it was the dream of the Jews that when the Messiah came again, the cloud of God's presence would return to the temple. The descent of the cloud is a way of saying that the Messiah had come and any Jew hearing that would understand it. Not only was there a cloud, there's more. From the cloud came a voice. Wow. First brilliance, then a cloud, now a voice. You will remember that a voice also came from above at Jesus' baptism back in Mark 1. And that voice said, This is my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. The voice from inside the cloud says, This is my son, who I love. Listen to him. Listen to God's son, Jesus. Clear instructions from God himself. Listen to Jesus. For only Jesus' words contain the truth. The warning is, if they listen to anyone else, the message would be distorted. It would be contaminated and false. Listen to Jesus because he has the right answers. So by inference we are to let go our own ideas, our preconceptions, our ambitions. We're to shut out the messages that pervert the words of Jesus. We're to turn off the noise from the world that's all around us and listen only to him. Anything else will lead us off the correct path into destruction. In God's big plan there is no room for human interference. No room for human interpretations or additional special revelations outside of Scripture. In God's plan, we're to listen to Jesus. The transfiguration has significance both for Jesus and for the disciples. For Jesus, it is God validating the direction that Jesus is taking. He had taken the decision to go to Jerusalem 
and accept the cross. Also, for Jesus, he met with Moses and Elijah during the transfiguration. And why is that significant? Well, Moses was the supreme lawgiver of Israel. To him, God gave the Ten Commandments. And to him, the nation owed the laws of God. Elijah was the first and greatest of the prophets. And the Jews regarded him highly as one who brought to men the very voice of God. When these two figures met with Jesus, it meant that the greatest of the lawgivers, the greatest of the prophets, saw in him all that history had longed for and hoped for and looked forward to. It is as if at that moment Jesus was assured he was on the right way because all history had been leading up to the cross. And it's important to note that after the cloud left, Elijah and Moses were no longer there, just Jesus God also spoke with Jesus. As always, Jesus didn't consult his own wishes. Although he was God, he went to God and said, whatever you will have me to do, I will do. He put all his plans and intentions before God through prayer. And God said to him, you are acting as my beloved son should act and must act. Go forward. On the mountain of the transfiguration, Jesus was assured that he had not chosen the wrong way. He saw not only the inevitability of the direction of his travel, but also the essential rightness of dying on the cross. The transfiguration had significance for Jesus, but also for his disciples. They had been shattered by Jesus' statement that he was going to Jerusalem to die. That seemed to them a complete negation of all they understood about the Messiah. They were still bewildered, and uncomprehending. Things were happening which not only baffled their minds but also broke their hearts. What they saw on the mountain of the transfiguration would give them something to hold on to even when they couldn't understand. Cross or no cross, they had heard God's voice acknowledge Jesus as his son. It made them in a special sense witnesses to the glory of Christ. A witness is defined as someone who first sees and then shows or tells. This time on the mountain had shown them the glory of Christ and now they had a story to tell. They had a story of his glory. They kept it in their hearts and were able to tell people about it. Not quite at that moment, but after processing and after time, particularly after Jesus died, they were able to voice their experience. In essence, they saw a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. Now, you might wonder, why was there only three disciples there? Why didn't he just take the whole crew of 12? Maybe Judas wouldn't have done what he did. Why was it only Peter, James and John? Now, some of you might conclude that these three guys were sort of the inner circle, you know, best mates, besties, I think there's a word. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, Peter, the boisterous one, which we've heard about, he was impulsive. However, that was the rock upon which the church uh, was built. And James, one of the two Jameses in, um, in the disciples, this particular James who was with him was a brother of Jesus. Now, given what Jesus taught and what uh, Annette um, read to us from... Mark 9, when they were talking about 
uh, who, is, who is going to sit at right hand and left hand and that sort of thing. Uh, Jesus, I don't think, was about playing favourites. So I don't think they were his favourite inner circle. I don't think he had an inner circle. I want to suggest to you that Jesus took Peter, James and John with him simply because they were three of the disciples in particular who were openly resistant to the idea that Jesus had to suffer and die. They didn't want to have a burial. You remember Peter rebuked him for saying it. He wasn't going to have a bar of this idea of Jesus the Messiah dying. So I think he, put, he took the three of them up there to show them what was happening. He took the most reluctant, those who weren't convinced, to show them about what his mission actually was and to reveal to them his resurrected state. He was to show them something none of the others would see until after he had risen from the dead. He gave them a glimpse of his glory. He took them to see Moses and Elijah. They'd been dead for years. To see both of them with... Now, I'm not really sure how they recognised Moses and Elijah. Back in the day, they wouldn't have had name tags. But something about the way things were occurring allowed them to recognise who these people were. And to hear the father say, this is my son, listen to him. As they used to say in the footy show, that's gold. Jesus took Peter, James and John to the mountain and indelibly imprinted on their hearts and on their minds the majesty and the glory of Jesus in his resurrected state. He took them to hear God's words. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, if that didn't grab their attention and shake them, I don't, un I don't know what would. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how this affected at least Peter. For years later, Peter, writing in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, says this. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We are eyewitnesses, says Peter, and we were there. He remembered what he saw, totally clear about what had happened. And I'm sure that James and John remembered as well. To have seen the Lord in all his glory, to have witnessed his death and resurrection, completely changed their lives. They spread his message throughout the known world and they died willingly for the sake of Jesus. Peter was martyred in Rome about 66 AD, during the time of persecution under the Emperor Nero. He was crucified upside down, so we understand, at his own request, since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus did. James was executed by Herod 
in 44 AD. John's the only one of the three who seems to have lived a full life and died in old age. But he was exiled on the small island of Patmos, just off the Greek, uh, the Greek uh, coast uh, in the Mediterranean. God's validation of his son during the transfiguration in the presence of his disciples and his call for us to listen to him still holds good for us today. And this is the bit I want us to take away. We cannot claim, we cannot brush Jesus' claims aside. For if they're true, they demand a response. And we owe it to ourselves to investigate these claims. For us to follow Jesus to glory, we will suffer. There is a price to pay. And we will experience suffering as we follow him. Listen to Jesus, said God. Do you want to hear the voice of Jesus? The, cert the Father certainly wants us to. He said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Does Jesus speak today? Yes, he does. How? Every word of the Bible is the voice of Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Well, there are a couple of ways. First, we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and that we know that whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. When the Father by the Spirit was guiding the writing of scripture, the will of God and the heart of the Son worked together. We know that in all things, that all things were made by the Father with the Spirit through the Son. But all things are absolutely through the Son. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 tells us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made. So from this we can see that the inspiration of the Bible was through the Son. So the Bible is the word of God, the word of Jesus. When the Spirit guided the writers of the New Testament, he's taking the heart and mind of Jesus and the writers are writing them down in Scripture as the words of Jesus. John says that all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you, as he was quoting Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, Jude and the writer to the Hebrews all write the words of Jesus. When the gospel writers say Jesus said, it is Jesus speaking. When they say Jesus did, it is Jesus doing. When they write about him, it's Jesus. When they speak about him, it's Jesus. They quote him. Uh, they, Jesus is in fact quoting Jesus, in a, in a sense. In the Bible, we hear the voice of Jesus talking about himself. So we meet Jesus in the words of the Bible. But we also have a personal experience as Christians. Through our personal experience of Jesus, we are born again. We have new ears. We have new eyes. We can hear and see. We're tuned, if you like, to the frequency of the voice of Jesus. The sheep follow him for they know his voice, in John 10. A stranger they won't follow for they don't know the voice of strangers. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, says Jesus. We know that the Bible is the voice of Jesus because when we hear it, we hear his voice. Listen to me, listen to Jesus, says God. So Jesus does speak today. You can listen to him any time you please. He has something to say about most 
everything. The way he wants us to live is to be so familiar with his voice from over a thousand pages of written text in our Bibles, his precious word in scripture, we come to understand what his will is for us, what direction he wants us to go as his chosen people. So who is this man? He is Jesus. He is God. Listen to him. What I want the singing group now to do is to share with you a song um, that we found uh, talking about the transfiguration. And one of the elements of this song is praise to God. Now, it's an item, but I think that they could probably, if you do it properly, sing along with the hallelujahs. So let's stand. The group could come out and, le- and just uh, engage us in song. Oh, 
your glory that cannot be unseen. I am changed, changing still. As I look upon you, Lord, Hallelujah, he's hallelujah, he's hallelujah. 